It says we're going. You're live. <gasps> oh, hello. Right, we've got to be professional now. Good oh, evening, everyone. Oh, no, hello. No, no, no. So, 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 what we need to do first? What we need to do first is uh, is play the tune, which you won't be able to hear. If I talk over it, that ruin the effect. Well, there we go. So, uh, hello, um, all three of you. No, actually, is that 12? Oh, look, we're buffering. That's not very good. Um, welcome to Something Who Live, which uh, is something a bit exciting. We've uh, we've taken our podcast and turned it into a live show so that our vast audience of several people can follow along as we're recording. Uh, unfortunately, this new arrangement on YouTube means that you've got to look at us while you listen. Um, but you can always, you know, look look away to one side if you like, or maybe if you wait to see if, if we post a version on the actual podcast feed, that might work too. Um, but on the plus side, it gives you the opportunity to interact with us, um, and we'll be keeping an eye on the visit the viewer comments as we go along. So for, for our live show, we're trialling a different and more spontaneous format but still relies on our usual remit of comparing stories from the old and new series. But before we get into that, I have to introduce to you um, my guests tonight, both stars of the smash hit Doctor Who Missing Episodes podcast. <laughs> and, and they're no strangers to something who. Uh, it's our regular contributor, Paul. Um, Hello. Yeah, yeah. Hi, Paul. And our, oh, special, that that's fine. No, no. And our special guest, Tim. Hello. I know that you've long hankered after being a special guest, Tim. Uh, you were somewhat miffed when uh, when when Jack Rayner was billed as special guest, and you were you were just guest. So. Well, I contributed so much more to fandom than Jack Rayner. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and by the way, Paul, I want you to know that you're no less special than Tim. Uh, well, you know, it, there are a lot of meanings to that word, so um, I'm, I'll take it as a compliment, whichever way you meant it. Yeah. I think Tim also has long hankered a desire to do a live podcast, and <laughs> I'm blaming him for this, whether it works well or or, <laughs> or if I if I crash and burn in my little window at the bottom there. But Tim, thank you, thanks, Paul mate. Paul and I might not gel as normally as well as we <laughs> do because normally, of course, mm. we're we're hunkered down in our secret missing episodes bunker. We uh, are, but yeah. we're locked at the moment because Paul lost the keys. So we are currently in our own, um, you know, respect, respective domestic residences. I've had to blur out the background of my, my personal dom uh, respective domestic residence because it's um, top secret. I don't want anyone, just anyone knowing uh, where I live because, oh no, it's gone. Damn. Phew, that was close. Nobody saw that, did they? Has it died? Blimey. No, I just showed off my bookshelf. Is that Fifty Shades of Grey on your bookshelf? <laughs> Shush! <laughs> um, I was more worried. Could you see the shelf with all the missing episodes? No, you couldn't see that. <laughs> no. I mean, you couldn't see it because it doesn't exist. Don't yeah, worry. No, no, there's nothing to see here. There's nothing to not see here. I have a nasty suspicion that we are not going out as live as we think we are. Now we've got a picture of your desktop. Oh, how, how tedious. 
Okay, is that any better? If I was, Steve, if I was Stephen Moffat, I'd make a hilarious joke about your browser history. Yeah, yeah, thank you but, very much. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm not, and I won't. Right. What? Let me let, let me uh, go back to the top. Hello, everybody. You heard, you heard most of my introduction. You heard me introducing both of my uh, guests. We got uh, very close to the point where uh, we were going to start. Um, and I think it's <laughs> probable that now would be a good opportunity for me to discuss the, the actual format. So uh, I have a, f a phone with a magic spreadsheet. Um, and that spreadsheet will select randomly one story from the classic series and one from the new and each of us will then take it in turns to discuss those stories picked at random and, and try and find a spurious link between them. Uh, and while we're doing that, the others will get the opportunity to pass comment and possibly drop in the on, odd anecdote of their own. Um, <laughs> I mean, we did have an hour. We, we were a little bit less than that now, but we hope to get around about three or four times. Um, so I hope that all makes sense. And I guess without further ado... Um, I say without further ado because naturally my phone has now taken the opportunity to be uh, to, to join the general theme of the evening and be. Do you want to go first, Richard? I'll give you one. Uh, go on then. Right, Richard, can you discourse for a number of minutes on the caves of Androzani? Yes. And its new Who counterpart, the Pyramid at the End of the World. <laughs> uh, well. One of those one of those stories I know rather better than the other. Um, I suppose that the the key thing about Case of Androzani was that the first time round I missed episode two, uh, and I was absolutely frustrated about that. Uh, it was a Friday night, and I happened to be watching Norman Wisdom. Um, you know, there, there was a Norman Wisdom film on the telly. Uh, we were watching it as a family, and uh, I quite enjoyed it. And then round about half past seven, when it occurred to me that I ought to have been watching Doctor Who. Um, and that I'd missed it, and not only had I missed it, but it hadn't recorded, and that was it gone forever. Ah. I was a bit miffed. Um, I mean, episode two, perhaps not the the key one, but nonetheless, uh, you know, not not really one that you'd, you'd want to miss either. So for many years, I had episodes one, three, and four, which I watched, you know, almost endlessly on on video without the the benefit of episode two. And I think I've probably still only watched it a couple of times. So I can't tell you very much about that one, uh, but the rest of them I really enjoyed. Uh, I, think it's, I think it's a cracking story. Obviously, um, uh, Davison's last uh, little bit of Baker at the end. Um, nice effort from Graham Harper. Uh, yeah, it's it's it, it's a cracking story, which um, I'd recommend to anyone. Um, <laughs> Pyramid at the end of the world. I have to I'll say, take. is is one of those stories that I've only seen once, um, and the ones that I saw it. Uh, there's a pyramid, right? There's lots of there's, there's a number of armies that are um, descending on it, and eventually, it's left to Clara, no, no, to to Bill to make some kind of a choice on behalf of the world to stop something from happening, as I recall. And uh, yeah, I mean, it goes right in the end, but in in so doing, it ends up the Doctor ends up in trouble, so. Yeah, on the one hand, everyone's saved, but the Doctor isn't. Um, yeah, it's in the middle of that Monk trilogy, which I can't say I, I really greatly enjoyed. 
um, and this was probably the worst of them. Um, but you know, I mean, it had it had its nice moments. Uh, the the, the um, I'm trying to remember. Was it a real place? Was it somewhere like Turkmenistan, or did they just make one up? I can't really remember now. Um, so yeah, th those are, those are those two uh, link between the two. Um, well, you know, there's a bit of outside broadcast in each. There's you know, it's a kind of both of them look a bit like a quarry. Um, you know, for an alien world. Uh, but you know you could say that about most locations in Doctor Who. Um, there's not really much else that I can say that that, that, that compares pretty much between the two. Um, I'd say I have a link. I have a link, Go Richard. Caves of Androzani was after a story that was filmed in Lanzarote, mm -hmm. and I was in Lanzarote when I watched the Pyramid <laughs> at the End of the World. <laughs> Uh, Richard, how how when... could you not have known that? Oh. <laughs> Richard, can I just interrupt by saying there's a guy called Mac, yeah. who I suspect is someone acting under a nom de plume. Yeah. And he said Richard looks really like a guy who works in a cafe. I always used to have lunch in. Yeah. It's really distracting. Can you do something about it? Yeah. Uh, I well... guess the cafe might have been in the northwest. If... Is there a setting to blur your face rather than the background? <laughs> that, would, that, would help, that would really help Mac out. Yeah. Well, I mean, I can't... Unless unless I'm yet to go back in time in the future and work in that cafe, I don't think I'm the same person who actually worked in the cafe. If the person in the cafe is about two metres tall, then I suppose it could, <laughs> it could possibly be the case. Otherwise, I think we're, we're probably... Um, he wants you to obscure your features somehow. Yeah, yeah. Well, mustache or, or, or yeah, thicker mustache. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. Uh, have you got any erudition to add, oh, Paul? To that, I'm just so glad I didn't. I'm so glad I didn't get the pyramid at the end of the world because, um, you know, I, I think it's not given too much way to say we're all a bit worried that we might fall down on our knowledge of the news. Some of the new series episodes. I had no idea that was the name of an episode, and I would have. I'd almost completely blanked that one out of my mind. I would have thought it was the, the last one, which I see is called The Lie of the Land. So, yeah, dodged a bullet there. Yeah. Well, uh. Tim, on a similar theme, I have for you The Android Invasion and Extremis. Oh. Is that the other half of... Um... Astonishingly, Yes. You do know I've just I've just spent my entire anecdote for that pairing. <laughs> oh, oh, what a shame! <laughs> Still got fifty-four seconds left. <laughs> well, you, so, can, you can start with the I, Android invasion if you like. I don't think it's always necessary to. I think sometimes we we overthink and dwell too much on story titles and, you know, the contents of an individual story, don't we? Um, the Android Invasion, Terry Nation. Is it Terry Nation's last contribution? No, it's not his last contribution, is it? Because he did Destiny of the Daleks. Um, it's a funny one, the Android Invasion, because it's always sort of jarred with me as being in a really excellent flow and build-up from seasons 12 to 13 to 14. Um and I just can't really get on with it, not least because of the conceit that I don't really buy that the <laughs> astronaut Crayford. Is it Crayford? Crayfish. Crayfish. <laughs> Crayfish. <laughs> Crayford. Charles, Charles Crayford. Not realise that his eye is missing. Hmm. 
it always feels a, a little bit uh, cheap as well because it hasn't got the brig in it. Hmm. And it's got this other character, Colonel Morris or whatever he's called <laughs> in there. Um, and I think it's probably good, but it's one of those which suffer from being relative to what it's surrounded by. Um, but I know other people rate it incredibly highly. It's got some iconic moments and it's got some great scene setting and it's got some effective things, you know, in the pub. Um, uh, the, the, unfortunately, the Sarah Android is probably uh, a bridge too far um, in terms of in terms of how things stand up today. Uh, but it's okay. I think it suffers from what it's surrounded by, but probably in the context of mid-Tom Baker, or indeed a lot of what came later, it's it's jolly good. And what was the other one? Extremis. Extremis. Now, uh, there's a funny thing about that. Yeah. <laughs> Somewhere in the um, Atlantic Ocean, there is a... Yeah. A, a series of islands, a family of islands called the Canary Islands. Wow. And, oh, yeah. Um, one of those islands is very famous for its its volcanic... Um, hmm. uh, volcano. Uh, volcano. It's volcanic volcano. And would you believe it? I was, in, I was on holiday in Lanzarote when that two-parter went out. So I was sat in a little... Um, a little rented villa, and uh, I watched it live from Lanzarote, which, by complete coincidence, is yeah. where they filmed not only Planet of Fire, yes. which happened uh, some uh, 30 years earlier, yeah. mm. but also mm -hmm. the Moon Egg episode. Yes, whose name you remember clearly, I'm sure. <coughs> Kill the Moon. Moon egg. <laughs> it's kill the moon, is it not? Kill the moon. Yeah. Which, so, which amazingly, is only twenty-two episodes before Extremis. I, I, I can see why you thought that was worth pointing out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, what I can tell you is that there was some um, uh, someone heavily involved in the missing episode scene at the time who yeah. um, uh, fancied himself as a bit of a source. Like a journalist, he had a source, and um, he told me that the mummies that appeared in these pyramids were actually the Mondasian Cybermen. Mm. Ah, wow! What uh, a channel! What a channel! A hotline to the. And I received that very message when I was in Lanzarote. Wow. Well, that's uh, that's that's top um, top anecdote. Have you have you got any uh, connections between the two stories? Of course I have, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> of course, I don't come on to something who, which links an old story and a new story, without A, having exceptional knowledge of all Doctor Who stories, and B, being able to draw parallels between uh, stories. And um, the parallel I would like to draw yeah. is that this is probably the only combination of two stories, yeah. classic and new, for which no parallels can be drawn at all. Do I get... Are we scoring this? Did I say that we should drop the scoring out? <laughs> I, take, I take that back because I'm going for a challenge here. Go on, then. Unless, unless I've completely forgotten what story I'm talking about. Yeah. The whole of Extremis is, um, is set within a 
virtual reality, alternative yes. version of the planet Earth. Yeah. And the Android invasion is oh. also set on an alternate version of a mock-up. Both of them are where the, the aliens have created a mock-up of the planet Earth to hone their plans. You couldn't get two more similar stories. But then Thank you, you and, and good night. <laughs> therefore, you are invalidating my point. <laughs> <laughs> Which I didn't think we were doing, Paul. It's <laughs> 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 entertaining. Well, I think it's only fair, Tim, that you should be allowed to pick two stories now at, at random, of course. Just Paul. press it once. <laughs> <laughs> who am I setting? Who am I? Uh, who am I? Paul is, is one of Oh, God. oh, oh hello. Still my beating heart. Uh, hello. We have story number 84 mm. The mm. Brain of Morbius. Oh, yes. Right. Versus story 235 mm -hmm. The Angels Take Manhattan. Mm. Oh. oh. By the way, I really like. Um, I really like the Android invasion. Look in your life. Keep looking down. Have you got Jean-Luc Picard's program guide in your in your lap there? I'm making I'm making notes, but I should probably be making them to the side of the screen somewhere so I do it unobtrusively. Oh dear, Brain and Morbius. Well, we're still in season thirteen, aren't we? Which could give me a chance to talk about. Some people do say that it's the it's the season with the most consistent atmosphere, mm -hmm. other than uh, Android Invasion. But I think it's certainly the most consistent in terms of ripping off Hammer Horror. Almost every story in that season has a very particular debt to pay to a classic film or literary work in the gothic genre, apart from Android Invasion. But on the other hand, the tone is up and down because some of them... I are playful in the way that I like my Doctor Who, mm -hmm. and some of them, like um, Planet of Evil, are incredibly boring, which is why Planet of Evil for me will always be the out. I am going to talk about Brandon Morris in a minute. I think it's probably the the story because that the combination of those two elements just right. It is, it has the uh, the darkness and the, the 6 30 pm adult quality that. Hinchcliffe was going for in spades, just as much as, say, the Seeds of Doom or whatever. Mm -hmm. But it also is very, very, very funny. Philip Maddock um, makes it, his performance. And if you think if you think um, that Robert Holmes originally wanted to replace that character with a robot, because it... No, hang on. Terrence Sticks originally wanted that character to be a robot. Mm -hmm. Well, it might have made uh, more sense to him it might have been his original conceit and he might have thought that replacing it with a mad scientist was was under undermining his clever twist but on the other hand it wouldn't be anywhere near as funny I can imagine philip philip maddock being dressed up as a robot stomping around with electronic treatment on his voice no you just you don't want that you want philip maddock as solon mm -hmm. shooting condo in the guts now what was the other one the angels <laughs> take man that's what you want yeah. Angels take Manhattan. Yeah, that was the, the angels do slightly suffer, don't they? Is it not? It's not a hot take um, in any way. Do they? Most people think that they suffer from diminishing returns every time they appear. I mean, Blink to me is a work of genius. The um, 
What's the next one? Flesh and Stone is a very good story in itself, but I think the new, I like everything about it except the new traits that it brings to the angels. Um, I don't really think all that business about suddenly being able to appear in TV screens and that which, what's the, what's the <laughs> mystical saying they use to justify that? That's which, something about the body of an angel becomes an angel. Oh yes, mm. yeah, yeah. This is more like this is more like a step back towards the um, the original creepy graveyard origins of the angels, isn't it? And the and the time travel mechanics. Yeah. Um, I've I've not watched it that often because uh, I wish I had a good excuse. I oh, know because my heart was broken by the ending. It was just so <laughs> sad, so sad that Doctor Who would never get to see. Um, what were they called again? <laughs> Amy and Rory again, because of the <laughs> the immutable Time Lord law and yes. the physical laws set in stone, yeah. set in neutrinos at the foundation of the universe that you can't go back and see somebody again after somebody's written a book about them or something, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah I mean it was like just, just heartrendingly beautiful the way it was contrived, um, and I don't I use the word contrived. <laughs> very precisely um it's a good 45 minutes um ending doesn't hold up but it's all about the emotional truth isn't it rather than the logical truth that's what we always say hmm. Hmm. <laughs> is there a link is there a link yes it's not the statue of liberty tiptoeing <laughs> through manhattan when only when hmm. people aren't looking at it what, terrifying isn't it yeah <laughs> one of those one of those moments hmm. where you think or i think that everybody was afraid of telling moffat that he may be going down a um <laughs> a bad road yeah it's a very metatextual plot point that because just like the angels only being able to move when they're not observed that's a plot point that only makes sense when you don't think about it <laughs> exactly. So exactly extremely, extremely yeah. clever hmm. uh is there a connection? Uh, <laughs> um, I knew I wasn't going to be very good at this mm. bit. Oh, I'm, I'm going to take the fifth on this. I, I, I've, I, got, I've got a very poor oh. connection for you. Yes, please. Right, which is that in both um, cases, I mean, so so, so within the um, within the the brain of Morbius, you've got the actual body that that um, Solon is is creating for uh, for Morbius but you've also got the fact that the this script's being hacked around by Robert Holmes out of Charles Dix's original and I think what we're saying here is that Stephen Moffat has sort of chopped the ability of the angels sort of beyond recognition in order to make it work um I don't know I mean, that's, that's, that's perhaps being a little unfair because as you say it's a little bit close to what they originally were to how they behaved in the middle one I mean, yeah, if I was going to follow through on Tim's point, the fact that it's not made of stone kind of undercuts the fact that the uh, you could use the Statue of Liberty in that sense. Isn't it made of plaster of Paris or something? Or um, bronze or something like that? Isn't ja it? Yeah. Jabber light. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can see that uh, that Paul Cook on our feet here is agreeing yes. with your view there, um, that, uh, that, that Moffat um, needs someone to, to give him a good... Um, telling 
off every now and then. Jolly good spanks bottom. Yeah, yeah. well, indeed. <laughs> Very apposite. I, I, I think probably... I mean, much, much so. I mean, I'm enjoying this particular pairing. We've we've probably yeah. to the next one before before everyone got, you know okay dies. Shall so, I do? Shall I do you again? Yeah, why not? It worked so well the first time. I'll do you now, sir. You have got from the Graham's era, Graham Williams era, even the androids of Tara. Oh yes, it's paired with that classic double bill, Human Nature, the Family of Blood. Ooh. Mm. Okay. Um, oh, I could do the I could do the um, the link first there because I mean it could be claimed that the Androids of Tara is a is a takeoff of that um, that famous book or is it a film? The Prisoner, Prisoner of Zend. It must be a book as well as a film. Both. It's a film yeah. and a. And whereas, of course, the Family of Blood and thing, Human Nature is a takeoff of that famous book, Human Nature <laughs> by Paul Cornell. Um, but going back to the two stories. Um, well, you've got one of one of very few um, Yorkshire-born um, companions in the, uh, uh, or indeed actors in the original series, Mary Tam, um, p- playing several roles in this. I mean, all all of them looking like Romana, but not not all of them actually being Romana. Uh, you've got, uh, I mean, it, it's it's they've got that nice conceit, haven't they, where they find the key to time almost immediately or the segment, and but they've still got to end up having an adventure along the way. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, I saw it in 1978. I'm not sure that I enjoyed it enough to have looked at it again in the intervening 42 years. So you're getting the memories of an 11-year-old um, now. Uh, plus, I suppose I read David Fisher's book at some point, probably in the early '80s. So, so there's that as well. Richard, we should tell the listeners at this point that most of Doctor Who on TV, you either saw live in the '70s or not at all. <laughs> <laughs> we found this out during our dress rehearsal yeah. the other night. I won't tell you which stories Richard hasn't seen, yeah. uh, in case one comes up and we have to wing one. Yeah. <laughs> um, and but yeah, I, I, I think. It's certainly, it was certainly not the worst story in the Key to Time season, although actually, um, you know, a season I seem to recall quite enjoying. Um, there was a season that I, that I got fed up with, with Doctor Who, and it wasn't that one. Uh, it was the following one. Although, having said that, I did watch this. I did watch City of Death and, indeed, um, the one with the Daleks in it. So it was really the, only thereafter that, that, for some reason, my attention got... Um, uh, pulled away. Um, and what else did we have? He's admitted it now, Tim. You're gonna you're gonna hide the which stories he didn't see, and now yeah, he's yeah, basically yeah. come out and said it. But never. Mind. The, There's uh, many more. The, um, <laughs> human uh, human nature. Um, so I never read the book. I have to. So I'm going to have to say that. So I, so I, I'm not going to be able to give you some some very finely argued um, um, reference of the two two different texts. So I only ever, I only ever saw the um, the TV version, um, but I liked it well enough. I thought I thought it's an interesting idea that the the, um, uh, the Doctor becomes a human and and falls in love and uh, and then eventually has to give all that up. Um, it's a little bit odd in the ending. The Doctor becomes very vindictive and um, uh, you know. He, he, he was he was trying to give him a chance he said but now that now that they've overstepped the mark that's it they've really had it 
uh, which seems, I suppose, it's it's somewhat in tune with the character of of Tenet's doctrine in the um, the latest part part of the era, but seems a little bit out of step in this um, series three to me. Um, but yeah, all in all, th- first world war setting, um, creepy scarecrows. Um, yeah, it, it, so this, to the link, the link between the two is I only I've only ever seen both of them once, and. <laughs> Uh, right, and I you're not allowed that. to use that link again. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and they're both adaptations of a book. Does that mean Lanzarote's out? <laughs> have you got? Any, have either okay. you got anything to add? Is there such a thing as a an anti-link? I mean, you point out that one of the interesting things about human nature is the Doctor's complete lack of compunction with the villains. They get a right good comeuppance at the end of yeah. it. Whereas in Andrew Tara Grendel, famously, oh, yes. doesn't die, doesn't get locked up. He just um, jumps in the battlements and off into the sunset mm. to twirling his moustache to, to exercise his villainy was, another day. Do you think Chibbers was a fan of this? Because it does seem to be some, somewhat uh, you know, in accordance with his um, Which one? Well, Tara. All, all, all of his, yes, Tara. All of his plots end up with the baddie walking off happily into the sunset, don't they? Except the mm. ones that don't. I've kind of forgotten that. And if you've discussed that in depth on... Um, Something here in thirteen cast. I probably wasn't on those episodes <laughs> um, because I was always on holidays, always away, or washing my hair or something. Whenever you wanted, you were called upon to discuss the the latest series. It's such a shame. I'm very disappointed by your apparent apathy at, at that two parter, Richard. I think it's my favourite New Who story. Mm. Oh, it's certainly my favourite New Who season, and that two parter. Um, is it before or after Blink? Yeah, it's just before. Oh. It's the beginning of the run. Those last five episodes, I think, are followed by much um, the three-part finale, which the last part I can take or leave, but followed by Utopia and preceded by things like uh, Gridlock, which is a perfect Doctor Who episode. I think I think that two-parter for me is absolutely stupendous. I think it's... Um, I think it's everything that season with that two-parter and the mix of stories. I think that's the absolute pinnacle of Doctor Who, to be honest. Combining production values and and story writing and storytelling and character development, I think that two-parter is an integral part of that wonderful, wonderful season. Um, I know some people prefer four, uh, but I just think it's I think it's absolutely brilliant. It's probably my go-to Doctor Who if I had to go and watch something now. Out of all of classic, all of new, I just think that would be it. So um, your apathy is misplaced, Richard, in my view, and therefore my opinion of you has sunken a little bit. Mm. I tell you what, and, oh. I, I think we'll have to look at it in an upcoming episode of Something Who, because that will force me to actually watch it again. I agree with everything Tim says about the genius of human nature in both its forms. And, of course, on top of everything else, it introduces the idea of the chameleon arch, which was used to its ultimate effect in the uh, most recent season finale. <laughs> um, or... <laughs> Sorry, go on. Wasn't it? It was brilliant. It was something like a lighthouse. It was great. Just yeah. as good as the way Paul Connell used it. Can you cut that bit out? Oh, that we, we, it's live. <laughs> I've got to be more careful. I didn't say that. That wasn't me. Why am I disguised as Cyberman tonight? <laughs> I think you've been Nobody's upgraded, com- Paul. Nobody's commented, yeah. 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 I can feel my vocabulary diminishing <laughs> with every passing minute. 
Who's next? Well, I, I guess we should we should say that um, as usual, our uh, um, our listeners are coming up with with more cutting remarks <laughs> on all of these. That, apart from apart from Tim, I have to say Tim's analysis of um, human nature is, is is something that I'll treasure from this uh, live episode for for uh, many years to come. <laughs> um, and as a reward, um, I'm going to have to now pick. Mac has said. Mac has said. Paul is a Jody Stan. I don't know what Stan <laughs> is. Mm. Oh, you do. You're younger than I am. Are you? No, you're younger than I'm. You're down with the kids. Yeah. I, it's it, it's like fan, but with a speech impediment. I, I, had, a, I, had, a, I had an uncle Stan. If that's got anything to do with it, he mm. had, had a car with a, the... with a wind-up starter motor. <laughs> Can we have a quick round on Martha? Because Paul Cook has said, uh, I like Martha. I feel like I'm a minority in this. What do we think about Martha? I, I think he's in a minority in this. Paul? Um, I think she is probably approaching a three-dimensional character and thus um, watchable in televisual terms in herself. But in terms of new who, I don't think there are any weaker, less stimulating companions because all the others have been so much larger than life. Um, I'm not. Give, give, I, us, give us your pine to, uh, to Martha then, Tim. <laughs> um, she's fine. I find her a little bit cornball sometimes. Uh, Doctor, I'm bringing you back to Earth. I found that a little bit corny, but um, I don't think there's anything, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with having a, a, a not larger than life character. No, nope, uh, nope, that's fine. And not dwelling too much on the companions themselves, because that allows the stories to breathe. And it just so happens where we have the most muted character in Martha, who is absolutely fine. Mm. But it just so happens when we have the least concentration on the companion in a season or a season arc or a story, you know, that, that we happen to have, in my opinion, what is the best season of Doctor Who? Mm. And for me, that is something I reflect on a lot, especially at the moment with seasons 11 and 12, where we have lots of noise and lots of foam about what the companions are going through. That, that it's just a, a lot of screen time that is, is, is left to trying to somehow dip into uh, the companions' lives and draw parallels with what a young audience might be watching without conclusion, like the dyspraxia and the depression and all of that. And as a, a subsequent uh, effect of that, the stories themselves are truncated and less dramatic and the stories are sacrificed in order to try and put light on the companions. So my point about Martha is it's absolutely fine. She's perfectly fine. She's perfectly well played. Some of it's a little bit cornball, but not having Rose and not having center of attention Donna and not having all the focus being on the companion arcs allows for better storytelling. And that is why I like Martha. Okay. I, Sorry, I went on a bit then. No, it's good. I, I liked her in um, the Cyberman two-parter, the Dalek Cyberman thing at the end of the previous season, um, when she was playing the cousin or something. And mm. um, <laughs> I, I, I just thought that she was a, she was, she was a good, act, good enough actress, but the 
didn't didn't like the particular part that they'd sort of created for her in this and, and the whole kind of you know unrequited love with the doctor i don't know whenever people ask me why i'm not that keen on martha they always ask they always say oh is it the unrequited love thing with the doctor is it that because i i guess that is the thing that most people are least keen on with her and i say no no it's not that good (laughs) that's Um, what i say tim (laughs) um hello the, the time warrior and the unquiet dead i think you might have watched both of those don't come at me with you. I think you might have watched both of those banter. I've watched everything. You haven't. Uh, tell us about Megloss, Richard. <laughs> oh, the world's not ready for that. Oh, the Time Warrior. The Time Warrior. Now, the Time Warrior. The first of season 11. The introduction of the Sontarans. I'm going to talk about the Sontarans because I've been thinking about this quite a bit. Prompted mm. by a Doctor Who show podcast oh, yes. about the Sontarans. Yeah, it's good. Um, and my takeaway is that the and this might upset people. I don't know. Um, my takeaway is that the Time Warrior is the absolute limit of what you can do with a Sontaran. Um, in the You've got a clone race, and they're never shown as clones. The mm. militaristic dialogue is only really visit, uh, visited in this one, their introduction, and perhaps the next one, the Sontaran experiment. Yeah. And then after that, they just go a bit a bit nebulous, don't they, in what they're about? Mm-hmm. But the, but there's a an almost um, there's a quite humorous, uh, um, over the top militaristic dialogue about them in the Time Warrior. Um, and indeed the Sontaran experiment. And I think it's about, I I think they should have probably been for me a one hit wonder, but they're physically, they're physically appealing, aren't they? As a monster. Um, and they've got traits, but I don't think they ever got them right after that really. And I don't, I've I've always felt they're a bit of a Star Trek villain. Um, there should be an army of them and they should just be about the military. And it just doesn't seem to fit to me with the, the idea of Doctor Who and mystery and villains that you somehow have to figure out. And and coming up across a, a, a militaristic villain um, isn't quite, to me, what the show is about. Hmm. So I think every time they've been revisited, they've been partially welcome but failed. Hmm. Um, and indeed, that carries on into, into New Who. Uh, and... John Pertwee has a very, very tight perm. Oh, yes. Yes. Indeed. In the Time Warrior, doesn't he? In in the studio bit, not so much in the filmed bit. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the Time Warrior. What was the other one, sorry? It was the Unquiet Dead. Hmm. I really liked the Unquiet mm. Dead. Was that the... That was That was the third story, wasn't it? Yeah. Yes. Of the revival. And I thought, by Jove, Doctor Who is doing the right thing here because we'd had Rose, scene setter. We'd had the voyage to the future, which was quite light, but take it or leave it. And then we went back into Victoriana and a ghost story. And I thought it absolutely 
was one of the most important factors in getting Doctor Who back into where it should be. Mm. Um, a scary historical, some uh, a name-droppy historical character in there in Charles Dickens, who was played by one of the best actors since Moses. Um, <laughs> since Gilgood. Yeah. And... Um, yeah, I just thought it was it was really splendid Doctor Who. I thought it did everything it should do. It had a great, scary historical setting. It had a, a sci-fi explanation for the Gelf. Um, yeah, that foggy London streets, which everyone thinks are in Doctor Who all the time, even though they aren't. What was that, sorry, Paul? <laughs> oh, dear. I spoke too quickly. It had <laughs> foggy London streets, which everyone thinks is in Doctor Who all the time, even though it's basically only towns yeah, around giant quarries. Um, no, absolutely, uh, absolutely first class. Is it Gatus? Yeah, and probably his best story, therefore, for um, yeah. probably his best story. I do like it when Gatus does Victoriana. I think I was probably in the minority that I really liked the Crimson Terror, uh, uh-huh. for where it sat, but I love the scene setting, I love the Victorian um element, I love the um the charitable mission element of it. I think that's, that's really good. I think that's obviously his strength. Mr. Sweet was a bit weak, but, um, but I enjoy the setting more than anything. So Yorkshire, you mean Yorkshire? Yes. Yeah. Yorkshire. Yeah. Let's raise a glass to Dame Diana Rigg. Oh, indeed. No, that's not, that's sentimental. I don't know why. Okay. I'll this I'm getting weak. Diana Riggs' daughter played the daughter, didn't yes. she? Yeah, what's her face? Yeah. Miss Rigg. Um, have you got a link? It seems almost asking too much after that lyrical performance across the two <laughs> stories. Villains out of time. And I think... This is one of the only situations in Classic and New Who where if you take any two random stories, the only possible link is that you have a villain out of time if the Gelf are out of time. Right. Wow. I th- uh, uh, so so Mac on, on our uh, feed here has said that both stories are about ghosts which turn out not to be ghosts. He wins. Right. He's on. No, that means he's on next time. Um, <laughs> he is. Or she. Or she. Oh, she's. Sorry, Sorry. Mac. I... Uh, 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 that's exceptionally poor of us, isn't it, to, to assume. Can we have a Scott on? Well, it's not my podcast. Richard, would you tolerate a Scott on your podcast? I'm, I'm half <laughs> Scottish. Would you tolerate another Scott <laughs> on podcast? <laughs> oh, dear me. Um... Oh, dear. <clears throat> yeah. So, so that's it. So, so, so I think it's it's up to you now to um, pick one for Paul. Uh, mm-hmm. So I'll just go to the supercomputer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The laser display board. Yeah. So what are the scores on the laser display board? <laughs> Why have we got a Samantha as well to do all this menial work for us? <laughs> because oh. that, that would because that's unreconstructed. Oh yeah, and it'll blow the budget. <laughs> Timothy. Yeah. <laughs> you have story number one hundred and thirty. 
I don't. Yes. <laughs> Which is the five doctors? Oh, the what? Five. The five okay. doctors. It's a Davison episode. I'll, I'll wreck my brains. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, and number two hundred and seventy-three. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Very good. Knock, knock, yeah. knock, knock. No, I, I, re- I. Got it just in time to <laughs> look only mildly stupid. I think I know the script of the Five Doctors backwards. It's almost beyond criticism, isn't it? Um, we uh, hmm. we discussed the Three Doctors at, uh, at length on something who once, or rather, I did. I've got a feeling we weren't actually doing it that week, but I decided to bring it round to the Three Doctors in my usual fashion, and how it's um, not really. An anniversary story, is it? It's just a story with another Doctor in as a guest character. Whereas this is <laughs> nothing. It's astonishing how much story Terence Dix manages to fit in, considering the shopping list. And I know that's become yeah. a bit of a cliche, the idea of being presented with a shopping list of requirements. But this outdoes all the other shopping, all the other shopping lists we've ever had mm. in the in the program's history. And he was the right man for the job, wasn't he? Because he is a formidable nuts and bolts man. That's what Malcolm Hulk uh, used to call him. He didn't. (laughs) (laughs) You'd like to think he did. I could have got away with that. That was their relationship, wasn't it? Mac at the the, um, keyboard, hammering out lines of dialogue while Terence would walk around the room. Uh, coming up with ideas, or possibly it was the other way around. I can't remember now. If anyone can remember the, that anecdote, please correct me in the comments. But you're a minute behind, so it'll, it's no point. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's uh, fans who who enjoy life and have friends. I think um, will always fall back on the five doctors for their drinking games and their and their parties and their sing-alongs. I, I, I mean, if I had fr- uh, fan friends, I'd love to do the same. I'd love to do a quote along to the uh, the five dogs with with a Bailey's in hand. It's just joyous, isn't it? Um, there's, there's not a lot of love, Paul, on on the comments for the extended version, which I think is the only one you can get on DVD, isn't it? Now we can't say anything about that because um, our good friend uh, friend of the Missing Episodes podcast, Paul Venezes, was responsible for re-editing the uh, extended version and did a marvelous um, job. What was that? Um, so we go on. Well, I personally thought that I'd never really understood the story until that final <laughs> sequence when, when um, the Time Lord hierarchy arrive in the tomb to arrest Baritza. Just too late to find out what's going on, and we see, um, I think, Chancellor Thalia come out of the transmet, followed by two guards. And I always used to think, what's going on? But in the extended version, you see uh, they walk off, and another two guards come out, <laughs> and then I think another four guards behind them. And the room is full of guards and it really ups the tension and increases the clarity and dramatic heft of the story. So, yeah, there's extra 10 minutes, which is mostly filled with guards walking about. Um, absolutely make it for me. So, yeah, I, I ceremonially burnt my original off air from uh, the children in need in 1983. We got some great stuff down. There. I think it was um, I don't know if it was only in the southeast. We got some great Wogan stuff on that Children in Need night, which didn't make it onto the original DVD. <laughs> because right. um, I think there was a northern bias yeah. among the production team of the DVD, and they 
they only got the bits from their local BBC oh, region. Really? It was shocking. Um, mm. <laughs> it's all true. It's all true. What's the other story? Knock, knock. Oh, that was awful. That was a, something living in the woodwork, wasn't it? No, nah, didn't like it. So, um, and, and, and that connection, <laughs> that connection between the two. <laughs> Who wrote Knock Knock? Was it? Was it? It was one of their guest um, big name writers that they'd brought in from a, another franchise, wasn't it? Does anyone know? Oh, I'm actually looking up <laughs> while we're live on air. How unprofessional! No, I'm not allowed to do that. Um, You're not Giles. Where is Giles? <laughs> he's he's on holiday. Ooh. Incredibly. Which is exactly what I feared would happen. It's one of those new episodes that I've only seen once, but it feels like I've watched it uh, possibly a negative number of times. I literally can't. It's got that Belgian detective in it, hasn't it? Oh, yeah. Poirot. Mr. Parrot. Mm. Whatever he's is called. He? Oh, God. I'm smoking oh, no. peak. That guy. Oh, I'm so sorry. I've let you all down. Mm. But um, I could talk about The Five Doctors some more. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, 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 I tell you, don't do that. Um, oh, okay. Shall I quit while I'm behind? <laughs> Can you cut that bit about the special edition? Oh, damn, you can't. <laughs> um, says, don't forget opening the special edition with some shots of corridors. Mm. There were some corridor shots, weren't Well, they? I never understood the geography of uh, mm. of the death zone, of the dark tower, of the, um, yeah. you know, all those corridors just outside the one room on Gallifrey. Yeah. Oh, can you remember once one time Gallifrey was majestic panopticons? Um, size of size of ten Olympic swimming pools, mm. and now it's one res, um, hairdresser's receptionist room. Mm. But at least we're in with a few graphic design people, Paul. Perhaps we could get them to do some sort of three D realization of mm. the the layout of the death zone and all yeah. the corridors and all that well, sort. I of... tell you what, though, there was a cracking um, was <laughs> special on the Five Doctors, which unfortunately I sold years ago, but it had all the all the. Um, set layouts in in there for uh, certainly mm. for the TARDIS and I think for, for also for, the, for for parts of the sets in the Death Zone too so that'd be something to track down I'm, 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 I'm sure that um, Gav's already got a copy um, correct I, me if I'm I, wrong I've, but I've, sorry go on oh, as well as um, adding in uh, deleted footage in the in the Five Doctors special edition yeah. didn't they also use some alternative takes of scenes and didn't isn't there one big scene in the Time Lord throne room where they used an alternative take, which was interrupted by Anthony Ainley farting. And the only reason they hadn't used it originally, because it was a better, the acting was better all across the board, but they couldn't get rid of the fart. Right. But Mark Ayres was able to extract it digitally right. from the soundtrack, which meant they could use the superior take. I think that's right. Mm. But if it's a product of my fevered imagination, I can only apologise. How splendid. I, I was going to suggest that mm. the link that I found is that not in knock knock there is a woman that's made of wood and in the oh, five, in the five doctors off. you've got some yes. very wooden delivery of the <laughs> no not the mind probe line or or as far as we should say no no not the mind probe oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, good i thought you were going to say that you have a woman encased in wood Yes, and Barusa in case you have, you have the people who are seeking immortality mm. encased in um, Jabalite. Oh, your doctor, do you seek immortality too? He was a great actor, wasn't he? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
That's an alternative take on the same thing. my missing its villain that year. Well, oh dear. Mm. Excellent. Mm. Um, so, so I think. I mean, we 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 come. Well, Spider Man called Cybermen, and the one that yeah. goes ah. Oh, oh, I yes. love the Foxes. Yeah, it's Mark yes, Hardy, isn't it? Uh, we're coming up on on sort of half ten, but since we had all that mucking about with the feed not mm. working, maybe we can do a, a sort of final lightning round for each of us, where we we're a bit a little right. bit quicker and we sort of thirty seconds sort of rush round one, just just to um, as a bonus for our um, if, if if they could consider it a bonus for those people who've hung around this long. Um, so, Paul, do you want to um, fire up another pairing for me, and I'll uh, I'll see what I can do with them. <laughs> Someone's just being personal about me on the yeah, on the feed, so I'm gonna stop looking at it. Oh. They're doubting my missing episode uh, <laughs> discovery credentials. Uh, uh, Sorry, what? Another pair of uh, I wasn't listening. Oh, uh, from the yes. spreadsheet. Number one, the hand of fear. Oh yeah. Mm. And paired with the girl <laughs> who waited. I think you might have had um, practice run at this. Mm. Well, the hand of fear. Uh, so. I, I, I think it's uh, it's pro probably known by by some people that I used to work in the nuclear industry um, when I was uh, when I was a lad. In fact, I uh, as a student I climbed inside the um, pressure vessel of um, Hisham two, uh, one of its reactors. I forget which one, and with a metal bent sort of metal rod hoiked out lots of bits of, of foreign material between the boiler pipes uh, in that reactor before they'd had the fuel loaded. So, I mean, it was relatively safe. I mean, I almost fell to my death. Oh, you're right, at all. Um, yeah, <laughs> uh, while I was doing it. But uh, there was no danger, at least from radiation. Um, so I'm, I've always been a little bit um, worried about Bob Baker and Dave Martin's grasp on radiation and what might happen um, if there were some kind of, you know, explosion or radioactive leak or something similar. Uh, it seems to be slightly less deadly in, in, in the hand of fear than, you know, one might imagine in, in real life. But uh, that being said, it's it, it, it's a nice story. I mean, it's, it's Sarah Jane's last. I was traumatised, I would say, as a, um, uh, as a young boy of what, about eight or something like that at the, the, the loss of Sarah Jane and and the peremptory way in which she's uh, thrust out of the TARDIS but uh, this is supposed to be a lightning round so I suppose I'd better move on to um, the girl who waited um, it's very it's, it's very visually nice um, and I do like the the twin time streams and the whole idea behind it I, th I think the, the first half of it is absolutely you know, it's, it's fascinating and, and well devised. It, it pulls for me a bit at the end when there's this sort of fake dilemma about old Amy and what they're going to do with her when you know that they're just going to dispatch her because you know they can't be bothered to hang her, uh, have her around for the rest of the series. Um, but I suppose that's my link then that uh, that um, Sarah Jane's kicked out of the TARDIS at the end of Hand of Fear and old. Old Amy is left outside the TARDIS at the end of um, the girl who waited. Mm. Bravo! Anything to add there? 
No, I'm just feeling, feeling deja vu. Didn't you do the girl who waited in our, in our test run? You, you, you thought that was yeah. almost impossible, I, wouldn't you? Yeah, I, I, I thought it was like something of spontaneity and verve that you, you gave it the first time around. No. <laughs> <laughs> on the other hand, on the other hand, at least this time you knew which story we were talking about. Hand of Fear is the first one I remember, as we it's traditional to tell people what their first Doctor Who memory is. Yeah. The um, Hand comes alive, cl- and cliffhanger end of part one, my first memory, and oh my God, course you'd remember it hmm. indeed um, and it's it? unique really because it's got that i always think it's the scene that nobody ever mentions but glenn oh yes what's his face ringing home to his wife and saying look after the children or kiss the children for me and all that sort of stuff it's quite a standout scene in doctor who isn't it hmm. i don't think there's anything else quite like it and well, it's apart, very apart from the old guard in um uh, the woman who fell to earth. Some people, people really loved him with his uh, when he's saying night night to his granddaughter before he gets summarily dispatched. Ah, uh, right. Well, yeah, okay. Um, yeah, but that that's incredible. Oh no, don't, well, no, I'm not even gonna. No, but um, I, I, I'm not I often criticise Baker and Martin. I'm always criticising Baker and Martin's characters for not being. I don't want to say larger than life again, but not being big enough for Doctor Who guest characters. Not really bursting off the screen, not being distinguishable, not adding anything to the texture and flavour and colour of the stories they're in. But on the other hand, they do often feel like real people, which is a plus point. Mm. Which is better, you know, a, a, an entertaining, charismatic cipher mm. or somebody who feels real because they're just like somebody you might meet in the street because they're like the people in the audience. I don't know, a philo- very philosophical point, I think move on excellent so so tim um by chance to um uh you know anthony carroll's asked why when we haven't got any missing episode stories and by chance uh, your pairing is the moon base and flatline oh hmm the moon base is there any reason why the production code for the moon base always flashes up for me. It's HH, isn't it? Mm. A bit woolly on production codes, but the moon base, Morris Barry. Mm. Um, I have a difficult relationship with the moon base, really. Okay. I'm delighted to have it, have the two episodes that we have. But it marks a retreat into silly science and silliness that, that, that some of season four especially represents so we've come from the underwater menace where there's some silly science isn't there there's a silly science demonstration about a little pot uh which explodes uh demonstrating what happens if you drain away the sea or whatever it is and then the moon base they have this 21st 22nd century dome on the moon and the day is saved by a tray which somehow hermetically seals the dome and saves everyone's life and the plot line with the cybermen only randomly picking off people in the moon base by poisoning the sugar mm. and therefore anyone who has sugar in their coffee is vulnerable i so watching it as a grown-up which i allegedly am i don't get on with the the 
lazy storytelling and the dumbing down for children because it shouldn't be dumbed down for children. It should be, it, it should give children something to aspire to understanding rather than going down to their level. And we had the whole poly cocktail thing as well, and that was more of the same. However, it's Cybermen on the Moon, which is quite powerful. And you've got Triton being silly, which is lovely. Hmm. And that's the moon base, Morris Barry, conducting from his music stand. <laughs> what was the other one? Flatline. Flatline, Riggsy. Yeah. I thought that was a really, really, really good premise for a story. I thought it was excellent. And I think Dr. Light stories tend to be better by virtue of there being less focus, this is a bit of a theme, but being less less focus on what is going on in the TARDIS with the companions. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought it was pretty good. I remember being grumpy about it, but ah, oh, I remembered <laughs> why I was grumpy about it. Blimey, you won't be up. Absolutely fine. Apart from there's this scene where she's in a flat. Sitting, I think, in like a a hanging chair. Oh yeah. With two dimensional monsters coming out of the wallpaper, and she's about to lose her life, and she needs to escape because she's going to die. And then Moffat wrote in it a phone call to Danny, where she pretends nothing is going on. Oh yeah. So like, how are you? What are you doing? And uh, it was really light and really absolutely destroyed all the tension. And I just thought, oh, my God, what are you doing with this Danny Pink rubbish? Mm. It's absolutely abhorrent writing. And that absolutely trashed the episode. And so I, the first time I watched it, I didn't enjoy it at all. And then the second time I watched it, I sort of skipped through the phone call to Danny Pink. Yeah. And it's quite a good story in the round. Hmm. So, so what Five you've done Earth. there is sort of the opposite of the special version of the Five Doctors. You've excised <laughs> a bit that you don't like, right? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so a good concept, a good story. I don't know who wrote it, but I, I liked the idea. Uh, but yeah, it's just trashed by this Danny Pink rubbish. Hmm. And it all, I didn't like the Clara Who idea. And that contributed to that as well, making her think she could be the Doctor. And a parallel between the two. Yes. I'm going to be very cross if you say that Moonbase is a two-dimensional story. <laughs> I, um, I, I remember um, reading the Target book very early on. It was probably about... You know, the second the third or fourth that i'd read and it was uh, i really enjoyed it so i think for me my view on Moonbase is is irre irrevocably shaped by the fact that i enjoyed reading that um, target book age seven yep i couldn't agree more that and 10th planet that for me there'll always be more than some of their parts because the uh you know the, the wonderful atmosphere of the novels lives on yeah and no matter how many times i watch the reality it can't destroy it for me so what was that, Tim? They both have the same introduction, both of those books. Hmm. The Origin of the Cybermen oh, yes. or something. Yeah, yeah, they do, yeah. 
Paul Cook has said, Moonbase is a terrible story saved by fans for one quotable line. Some corners of the universe, yeah, I suppose. Yeah. Flatline, another story saved by a speech. There is your link. The story <laughs> remembered for lines and quotes rather than the story itself. Not wrong. Not wrong. That's what I was thinking, but I wanted to give Paul and the feed uh, a chance. There's another, there's another good, good. The doctor gets another powerful speech in Tomb of the Cybermen as well. There was a lot of it about at the time. Yeah. Something about Jerry the Davis. Cybermen seemed to encourage him hmm. to get all, all weighty and philosophical on us. Hmm. Yeah. Tomb of the Tomb of the Cybermen's a silly story, isn't it? Hmm. <laughs> isn't it? Well, it it, it, uh, it, yeah. it it is a silly story, and yet I still enjoy it. But it, but yeah, I mean, there's there's objectively there's all sorts of reasons why I should hate it, and yet I still love it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I finished with Bailey's. Come on, oh, you wanted Bailey's. To I was speculating on the chat feed whether it was, it was, it was the milk. Um, milk of the queen bat of Androzani Major. Mm. Damn it. Mm. it! I think it doubles as that. So now, if um, if my companion. Is gravely injured. Yes. She's it. She's on her own. <laughs> right. Yes. Uh, so dark. Uh, come on, you want a quick fire round, yes, Richard? So, so you're, you're have to I do... will give you a, a minute ten... on this and no, no more. No, no, isn't it? I think. I think isn't it? To, oh no, it's Paul. You. It's me wrecking up for Paul. Yes. Come on, Sam. Don't give me the numbers this time. I know <laughs> you think it increased the tension. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> Just give me the production I'll code. I'll give you these, Paul. I'll give you these. But Richard has to go first on the classic Who story. Okay. Mm -hmm. He what? Or you take over when 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 Richard. All right. Yeah, we'll do that. All right. So I'm going to give you the numbers. Yeah. The first one is story one 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 Meglox, (laughs) and then it's two o one Midnight. Uh, Richard first on Megloss, please, and then over to Paul for Megloss and Midnight. Okay. Paul, that would give you a little bit of thinking time. I, <laughs> um, I remember very clearly watching all four episodes <laughs> of, 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 of The Leisure Hive. I also very clearly remember watching all four episodes of Full Circle. For some unaccountable reason, I have absolutely no memory whatsoever of anything happening in between those two and I can only conclude that I must have randomly failed to watch Megalos for some reason um, so all I can tell you is that it's got an alien in it that looks like a cactus and at some point turns into Tom Baker because there's a waxwork of him um, and then also it was directed by Terence Studley um, and the only reason I know that is because um, Hugh Turberville mentioned it uh, on something here a few episodes back. Um, so there you go. Paul, you can tell us about it properly now. Uh, no, I can't. <clears throat> if I could remember, I researched it. We did a we did a very in depth podcast on the whole of season eighteen, and um, the strangest thing is that all three participants—that was Tim, myself, and um, and uh, yeah, and Matthew. It's right. I was pretending I couldn't remember his name. That's very cruel. <laughs> hey, hi, Matt. He's not watching. We all one. The oddest thing was that we all came to the conclusion that Megalos was not the weakest or worst, or or generally our least favourite story of the season, which we all went into it assuming it would be. Um, I went into it assuming it would be because I hadn't seen it since 
until last year. I haven't seen it since the time. Um, I <laughs> it's it's famously a story that is, it's a hangover. It was written not for season 17, but the writers had season 17 in their heads and they were writing Douglas Adams style, Graham Williams style comedy who, hence the ridiculousness of the premise. And then incoming script editor uh, Christopher Holy Bidmead took out most of the jokes. And it was, so early was he in his um, in his script editorship that he hadn't realised you needed to replace them with something. So most of the episodes are about 19 minutes long, I think. Uh, I, I am exaggerating, so don't correct me. So it's a very strange experience. There are <laughs> There are still some jokes in it but he's cut out all the doctor's funny lines which right. is an odd experience you've got the very serious season 18 doctor mm. that we've just been introduced to it's the very grave for no particular reason doctor of season 18 because he hasn't even spotted the oncoming heat death of the universe yet but s somehow he's lost his joy de vie and yet he's he's walking through not wisecracking in the middle of all this ridiculousness and turning into a cactus and um, Freddie Treves overacting. So that's, that really is peculiar. And also as a story, um, don't like religious maniacs. The elements just don't fit together. Space pirates in with flamboyant shoulder pads, cacti. Barbara Wright pretending to be a religious <laughs> alien zealot. I mean, it's just it just doesn't cohere. And yet somehow it's not my least favorite thing to watch out of season 18. That was far too long. Midnight. Ah, well, now now we're talking. Um, yeah, I mean, I've always thought that's, that uh, stories that don't have a companion in offer a great opportunity to concentrate on the, the plotting and really get into the nuts and bolts and the meat of what Doctor's good at without all this uh, namby-pamby emotions and stuff. I've always thought that. And I've, I've told my theory to some of my good friends. Um, I, don't know if, I, don't know if, I don't know if it's lodged with any of them. <laughs> but um yes uh it's russell after writing a lot of the big episodes in the first couple of years of new who the ones the tempo ones the ones that needed to set the tone relaxed a bit later on didn't he and started giving uh, himself the freedom to, to write stuff outside of his comfort zone you could say he's also seeing if he could do a Moffat with this one, which um, I guess is a bit unfair. It's not just a stylistic exercise because it it conspicuously doesn't do what Moffat would have done because it, it doesn't explain anything, but it is an exercise in atmosphere and and uh, lacking, I guess, the sense of People's innate humanity will save the day. That is common to most of Russell's work. Mm -hmm. Not, it's absent here. So yes, pretty strong meat. Is there a link between the two? Yes, they begin uh, with the letter M. Oh. <coughs> oh, it's gone quiet. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I'm not. Who's sure turned into a pumpkin? Well, it's all very well for. Flanagan and Allen, or whatever they're called, to <laughs> tell their story where they're sat there and they just can't think what a villain would look like. And oh, 
there's a cactus on the table. Let's make it a cactus in a plant pot. Yeah, it could have been a bowl of potpourri. Mm. We, we should thank ourselves that. And they're proud of this story as if it's some brilliant conceit. I'm not allowed to swear, am I? <laughs> well, it's, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll take it as read that you just have done. It's a plant pot <laughs> with a cactus in it. Flanagan and Alan. There aren't even any songs in it. It's not up to that usual. They just weren't, unless Bid Me cut all those out as well. I bet he did, didn't he? When you get in amongst it, apart from the wigs and the cactus, and Jackie Lane, uh, not Jackie Lane, sorry, uh, Jackie Hill, whose performance is a bit odd, and the old, what's the, um, what's her mate called? The old know. wise guy who was ex- who knew the doctor. Oh, I hate stories with people who know the doctor. Mm. That only comes in JNT. He's rubbish as well. Mm. But apart from all of that, in terms of plotting and pace and uh, and comedy bits, it's fine. Yeah, it, it stands out in season eighteen, as does the state of decay, and that it's a. An older story, isn't it? It's an older style story, an older style yeah. of water. Tim, is it true? Is it true that you have very clear memories of this? Not so much the story itself, but of Tom Baker as a character, despite the fact you were only three months old when it was broadcast. Yeah. And have you ever thought, wondered what how that can be? No, I haven't, Paul. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> we discussed on Monday night, listeners, that. Um, my first clear memory of Doctor Who is Adric flailing around in the, I can't remember what it's called, but the, the machine and kinder. Um, and then various firm memories from then on. But I also was very confused when I flipped open a Peter Haining book in the 80s and saw Tom Baker as Megloss, and I had full recognition of it. I was really hoping it was going to be that you'd gone to Madame Tussauds or, or wherever it was. Maybe somebody suggested it was Blackpool. I think somebody would have to have been Richard. He's the only no, other person here. I think it was Tim. Oh, right. I was really hoping it was because you'd seen the waxwork um, at a mm. formative age, but you don't think you did. I don't Not think I saw it by that point, but I may well have been to the Blackpool exhibition. So if Megloss was at the Blackpool exhibition, that might be a an explanation for it. Or I remember it as a... Well, I was born in in May 79, and the first story after I was born was Destiny of the Daleks. Ah. Yeah. Now you're talking. So I must have been one year old or one and a bit, and I find it highly unlikely I would have been awake at that point and being able to recall things on the brightly colored machine in the corner of the room. But Mm. then again, I am quite special, so... Maybe you saw it at Wookiee Hole. I gather a lot of the old uh, unneeded, redundant waxworks from Madame Tussauds <laughs> end up in storage at Wookiee Hole. Something to do with the uh, the cooled caves. There's a Davros down there as well. It's we, all true. We established at the start, um, Tim, how special you are. Um, although, of course, Paul is every bit as special. Um, uh, that that part may have been lost in the whole kind of technical fault debacle, but we'll see. We'll see whether that survived for posterity. But just in case, I'll, I'll, I'll make the point again. Excellent. So? Yeah, I think we've, we've, we've probably um, tried the patience of 
those <laughs> few diehards who've kept watching the flickering screen at very low bit rate for for over an hour now. Uh, but thanks very much for um, uh, for, for for listening to us uh, warbling on. Uh, I mean, you know, you'll be very much be the guy, the uh, the judge of whether this was a good idea or not. But I have to say that at the very least, I've quite enjoyed the um, the the free format that it's offered us to to chunter on about Doctor Who for an hour or so. No editing. And no editing. <laughs> yeah. So, so thanks, Paul, and thanks, Tim, for your idea for this um, for this event, and thanks most of all to you, very patient and slightly crazy people out there. Oh, keep going! <laughs> <laughs> you don't. No, no, no. Say that again, and we will, and then you'll be sorry. <laughs> uh, I think. I think a different format. A, a tweak next time we we reduce the length of time we talk about these stories by 10 seconds every time until we're down to like 10 seconds for each one how about that hmm. we've got 10 <laughs> seconds on the romans and the christmas invasion the romans Go. and the christmas invasion <laughs> yikes no, well, the romans is brilliant it's it's an excellent story um and very funny as well it's the first out first particularly funny story um, Christmas Invasion tea. It's all about tea, isn't it? Tea and oranges. Um, the Doctor's revived by the smell of tea and then the, the Clementine's what he uses to finish off the villain. Um, there's not really much of a connection, is there? Um, uh, I mean, the Doctor's hardly in the Christmas Invasion. He, he pops up right at the very end. Um, but then again... And yet, it's a strong story. Yeah, Hartnell is kind of a—he's uh, uh, not really driving the plot, is he? In in Romans, he's sort of standing on the side and and, and watching. But um, in fact, in fact, in Romans, I'm not sure that any of the of, of the Tardis crew particularly drives the plot. Barbara, maybe um, Ian gets to do it, a bit of a run around. I'm, 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 I'm warbling now. Just out of um, curiosity, I just saw what might be next. Oh, yes. And we can't get into it because it would actually be a really good one. Earthshock and World Enough in Time. Mm. Ah. Oh, well. But anyway, we're not doing any more. No. Good night, everybody. I apologize um, to... Uh, to... Unreservedly. <laughs> what for everything? <laughs> yeah, everything. Um, yeah. yeah. Okay. Anyone? Anyone? Yeah. It's all it, the time. It's. I tell you what. I tell you what. We haven't yet done. And what we did? Must you write a closing do. speech? Yes. No, I didn't write a closing speech. Oh. But I've got the Yukon Kazoo. Playing now. It is playing. I can't. Oh, yes, right now I can hear it. That's it. It's gone. Yeah, well, I was just carrying on the uh, sort of yeah. rhythmical emotion of it. Cheers. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, listeners. Thanks, Mac. Thanks, Paul Cook. Cheers, Anthony. Cheers, Julian. Yeah.
Splendid. I think I know who Mac is. <laughs> He's given himself away by an umpteen equally blatant fashions. <laughs>